For the evening tea time we made another day i don't know how i do these three shows in one day i'm telling you it is from 7 30 in the morning to 11 o'clock at night i don't know how i do it every thursday but i do it and today in the studio this evening uh for evening tea time i have the amazing erica scott she is the ceo of creating consent culture she's an author she's an advocate she's an educator and she's a survivor and she has a voice and she's making a difference as you can see in the video that we just seen that i yeah i played so let's get the disclaimer going let's get some bio on erica and let's get erica in here and let's serve you a good strong cup of tea now i do want to give you guys all a heads up that tonight's tea time may be triggered so i will have trigger warnings going up and down the screen during the broadcast I will also put the trigger warning into the audio information. So if anything does trigger you, please, I will not be offended if it's too much and you need to leave the show. I will be honored if you guys would rather leave than be triggered because I do know how triggers work from being a survivor of abuse myself. So let me give you the disclaimer and let me get you some on Erica Scott and let me get Erica Scott in here and let's just spill some education out there to all of you tonight. Disclaimer for Miss Liz's Tea Time Live Show. Miss Liz, myself, is going live using StreamYard. Before leaving a comment, please grant StreamYard permission to leave your name at StreamYard.com. Please be advised that the content brought forward for any Tea Time show hosted by myself, Miss Liz, is always brought forward in good faith. However, may bring forward dialogues and opinions that are not representative of my platform. The facts and information are perceived to be accurate at the giving time of airing. All Tea Time guests and and audience participants are responsible for using their good judgment in taking any action that may relate to the discussion. The content brought forward may include discussion for some where they may be emotionally at risk. It is significant to know that this show is engaging in discussion forms only to offer and inspire awareness and connection and is not providing therapeutical advice. If you have any questions about the disclaimer or the panelist discussion, you may freely contact me, Miss Liz, through my email at bookingmissliz at gmail.com. Moving forward, should you choose to voluntarily participate in today's show in any aspect, I myself, Miss Liz, welcomes you. And should you decide that the show is not made for you at this time, I respect that choice. And we'll see you at a later show at a later date and time. And again, all tea times this year in 2023 are done on a Thursday, 10 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If they are not on a Thursday, it is a rescheduled tea time, which will be a Monday or a Tuesday. So now let me give you a little bit on Erica. Who is Erica? Well, Erica Scott is the creator of the Consent Culture Intro Workshop and co-author of the book Creating Consent Culture, a Handbook for Educators. As a survivor of child sexual abuse, 20 years plus of working in a male-dominant industry, and as a mother of young adult children, they, they feel the urgency to bring more effective consent education to the wider audience. She is the CEO of Creating Consent Culture and has taught consent in Canada, India, and the United States, 
In 2019, she was given the Rex Carmarver Global Award for Social Innovation. So let me get Erica in here and she can share a little bit more on that. But we're going to be talking about her story first. So it will be trigger warnings uh, up. So again, let me welcome Erica in here and let's give you a strong cup of tea on surviving. Thanks for having me. Welcome so much, Erica. I'm going to take a sip of tea and a drink of water and all that good stuff. And I'm going to start off with how I start off all the tea times. So, Erica, I want to know who you were as a little girl and who you are now as a grown woman. Right. So as a little girl, I felt very alone. I was uh, scared and um, I felt I, that I didn't have a voice. Um, I felt my voice was really taken from me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I am a survivor of child sexual abuse and, uh, I did not tell anyone anything. The very first time was when I was like 14 years old and then I hyperventilated, I couldn't breathe. Um, and then it was, you know, quite some time before I took any action, but, um, you know, I've learned a lot and I made it through some, there were times when I didn't think I would. Um, there were times when I really, you know, considered like, why am I here? Or why does everything have to hurt so much? And um, I think that happens for a, a lot of survivors. Um, and I found my voice again and I'm now a consent educator, which is really, um, um, helpful. It's good to feel like I'm having an, an impact and making a difference. And it's also really healing for me as well. You know, Erica, tonight's going to be a trigger warning for myself as well, because I'm a survivor of child abuse from the age of four. Uh, and as we spoke backstage, uh, my daughter who passed was from my molester. Uh, so uh, I feel for you and I understand we really need to get these stories out there and we need to bring this awareness. And I really want to thank you for bringing this to the table and coming to me and sharing your story today with all of my audience and listeners out there. So at any time, if there's something that's too much, Erica, we can slow down, we can bring it back and we can take our time. Uh, the reason why I asked you who you were as a little girl, cause I kind of, I kind of guessed that you weren't a child survivor of abuse as a child um, because most of us abusers and uh, most of us abusers, most of us are survivors. Yeah. When we grow up, we want change, right? We want to make that difference. We want to show people, okay, I have a voice now. I'm older now. I'm an adult. I can do this. We're not afraid of the abusers anymore, you know, cause we, we, for some reason we feel like we're stronger, right? That's right. Yeah. When we're little, we, we, we kind of just, shy away and go into the corners and stay quiet and you know so erica i want to get into how old were you and how mm -hmm. did you how did you get help and how did the abuse stop right yeah so the abuse started around the time i was four too and um i was actually strangled uh and that was very intense um and then it was my it was my oldest brother who was about eight years older than me and the abuse continued until he left home. So about the time I was 10. Um, and so I really had this like early training of that my body wasn't my own, that I couldn't tell anybody, um, you know, I was, you know, told if you tell anyone, I'll kill you. And, um, and I took that very seriously because of the strangling. Um, and it gets into your body, those messages, right? It gets into your cells because it's something I still have to deal with is my uh, shoulders always wanting to come up around my ears and that kind of thing. I don't even like wearing turtlenecks. And um, it's, you get over a lot of things, but other things stay in your cells and you have to keep reminding yourself. You have to keep doing nice things for yourself and um, treating yourself the way that you would treat someone that you care about. Um, that's something that I learned much later, but um, I don't know if you wanted me to stay on the, 
uh, in the time zones. <laughs> but uh, whenever when I, you're comfortable with Erica, because this is your time, this is your tea time, this is your story. Well, I think, you know, um, throughout my 20s and 30s, I did a lot of things to make change. But still, I I had difficulty with my boundaries. Um, because, you know, when I was a child, they were really shattered. And I was really trained on a on a deep level that like I didn't have control over my own body. And so it was very difficult for me to say no or to treat myself well, you know? Um, and it wasn't until I finally had a kind of like a health crisis in my forties when I finally learned uh, practical tools for really loving myself and treating myself better. And I'd love to share that because I think that's great for everyone. Like, um, you know, I had this great advice from someone who said, you know, you've got to, you've got to learn to love yourself. And I was at the time very distraught. And I was like, I don't know how, like, it seemed too difficult, you know? And they were like, just do something nice for yourself every day. Just do something, treat yourself like someone that, like you would treat someone you love. And so that's what I started doing. I was like, instead of having a big list of things for myself to get done with that, I was, you know, anything nice for me was never on and the list never ends because you're always adding more things to the list. Right. So I stopped doing that and I started um, making sure that every day I did at least something nice for myself, something that would make the cells in my body go, Oh, somebody loves me. And then, you know, every week do something a little bigger that was nice for me. Like some, because I've always like spoiled other people in my life, you know, uh, people that I love, people that I care about. I know how to, I know how to spoil someone. So I just did it for myself for a while. Um, and that was uh, the beginning of another level of healing for me um, where, uh, and this was about the time too, where I, uh, learned the boundary work that I do now, the consent work, and uh, learned what I teach now. And it helped me so much. And that's why I teach it. And um, where I learned it uh, was at a thing called Cuddle Party, actually. It's in my book. Um, the co-author of my book is Marsha Baczynski. And she started an organization called Cuddle Party. Um, which is actually really fun consent education. Um, the whole first part of Cuddle Party is learning the rules of, the, of consent for the party to make it a safe space. And, but you do it in fun exercises that really make people laugh and have fun. And, um, you know, going to Cuddle Party and then becoming a Cuddle Party facilitator really changed my life. And I, one of the things I loved um, you know, the rules of Cuddle Party really helped me with my boundary issues, but I also loved seeing people when I was a facilitator, seeing people in the uh, group have their epiphanies and, you know, realize, oh, I've been doing it this way my whole life and I could be doing it this way, you know. Um, you know, I didn't just and be having a safe space to say no and and be heard and be have their no honored. Um and seeing how that helps people. So uh, I really wanted to take those exercises and tools and make them more widely accessible. And that's how I uh, got into doing what I do now. So I, I, I asked Marsha if I could take like parts of the welcome circle for Cuddle Party where we go over the rules and add some things and change some things to make it, you know, and without the, the cuddling <laughs> to make it, you know, something that would be accessible to anyone and everyone. Um, and she said, yes, go for it. And I was living in Honolulu at the time and I workshopped uh, the new workshop there um, and got great feedback and people really enjoyed it. And so then I realized, okay, now what do I do with this? And um, I convinced Marsha to write a book with me and, and I've been 
leading the workshop ever since and sharing what I've learned um, and what I'm still learning with other educators, um, with parents, with students. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really been good. It's been a good thing in my life. <laughs> so Erica, creating consent culture, mm -hmm. those three words, do they stand for something for you? So um, you've probably heard people talk about rape culture and that's a real thing that we deal with. But in the book, we call we talk about it more as coercion culture because consent is not just about sex and not just about um, sexual assault. And so we talk about the broader issue of living in a culture where it's really normalized for some people to have more power than others and then to use that, you know, to coerce other people to do what they want. And this is, you know, most of us grow up, you know, learning that we have to do what other people want us to do a lot of the time and to just whatever we're feeling, just shove it down. And so creating consent culture is freeing ourselves from that as much as we possibly can. Because what we do is we carry this internalized feeling into even our most intimate relationships where we could have more freedom. Um, you know, obviously we can't go into work and say, no, I'm not doing that. Um, but in our intimate relationships and in our friendships and in our families, we could have more freedom, but we're so used to this dynamic of you do what I say or, you know, um, and shoving your feelings down not so much that you're maybe not even aware of how you're feeling or aware of what you really want or, you know, taking the time to notice what you're wanting and what you're not wanting. Um, so creating consent culture to me means, you know, in the spaces that we can, freeing ourselves as much as we can to have a culture that respects everyone's physical autonomy and agency and um, respects everyone's needs and wants equally um, and where we can work together um, uh, to prioritize relationship over getting what we want and to have, you know, the most agree, you know, mutually agreeable interactions that we can have. The reason why I asked you if creating culture, uh, consent culture, if the letters, you know, sometimes we talk oh. in codes. So the three CCC, you know what I mean? Like, is it like a code? Is it like a, an adult? Like, is it uh, a metaphor? Or is it just the three words were what stuck to you in your heart and you were like, that's going to be the name of it? Um, it kind of evolved. Um, I think at first I was talking about consent culture pioneers. And then it was pointed out to me that pioneer has like a, some connotation to it that's not great for everyone. And um, and I and then I was like, um, you know, think trying to think of another word. And of course, create goes well with consent culture. And I like the act. I like the feeling of it and the sound of it and what it means. Like to me, we are always creating culture, you know, um, whether we're thinking about it and doing it intentionally or not. It's always happening. We're either recreating the culture that we grew up in or we're creating something that's new and different. Um, and every generation does that. And every, you know, all the time, it's happening all the time. We're taking things from the past that worked. And we're getting rid of things from the past that didn't work. We're adding things that work now, you know, and um, figuring it all out together. So. I kind of like it because it's all like a CCC, right? So it's like three C words. And everyone knows Miss Liz likes three words. I like I like my T, teaching education awareness, my TEA. You know, you know, I like simple analogies and simple metaphors of understanding hard topics. Mm -hmm. You know, when you hear the word tea, you think it's, oh, it's a beverage. It's not a beverage. Mm -hmm. It's actually... A metaphor of the past, the present, and the future. So, Erica, I want to get into your tea. If I ask you what 
tea would you serve me tonight? What three words would you give me? Right. So um, for the tea, I would pick teaching because that's what I'm doing now. And I'm feeling really, even though I'm always learning and I'm teaching as well. Um, for the E, I would pick empowerment because I feel like this is this uh, these tools and these skills that I'm teaching are really empowering. And um, I would, um, for the A, I would pick awareness because one of the key things that I think I bring to the conversation is the awareness of being more trauma-informed when we talk about consent and being more compassionate. Um, a lot of consent education out there I find is really like, just say no, have better boundaries, um, you know, say what you want. Um, and it's just not that easy. And what I, and also people will say things like consent is simple. If it's not a yes, it's a no and things like that. And it's not simple and it's not um, easy for people to just say no. A lot of times it's very difficult and sometimes it's even impossible um, to say no. For instance, if you're having a freeze response, which is the most common response to sexual assault, a lot of people are only aware of fight and flight, but it's actually fight, flight, freeze, and probably fawn, although I haven't seen the science on that yet. I believe that is included as well. But freeze, the freeze response is another autonomic response that happens, you know, in 15 milliseconds, like quicker than you can have a thought when you're in a situation where your body decides it's a dangerous situation. And when you freeze, you really can't do anything. Like you're stuck, you're, um, all the same things that happen during fight and flight happen. Your brain shifts around, your amygdala shuts, your amygdala gets more uh, focused and your frontal cortex shuts down, uh, your circulation changes, blood rushes, you know, to your limbs. Um, all these things happen and, you know, in the blink of an eye and, but with freeze, you just feel like you can't move. You can't say what you want to say. You might be able to say a few words. You might be able to say, uh, okay, sure, or something, but you can't say what you want to say. You can't do what you want to do. Although you can do automatic things because the last time I had a freeze response, I was driving and I was able to keep driving, but I couldn't do what I wanted to do. I couldn't say what I wanted to say. And, um, you know, what happens is this is the most common response to sexual assault. Like over 70% of people who are assaulted have a freeze response. And then they afterwards don't understand what happened and they blame themselves and they shame themselves for not having said no, for not having run away. They don't understand that they had a response that they couldn't control. And other people don't understand other either. And they will ask questions like, why didn't you just leave? Why didn't you whatever? Because people don't understand about the freeze response. And unfortunately this leads to a lot of victim blaming and shaming. And it also, um, comes from this myth, there's a myth that people believe that you know, a sexual assault will always be loud and there will be yelling and screaming and fighting and violence. And the reality is it's usually very quiet and still because some the victim is having a freeze response. So we need to get past these myths. We need to learn like what really happens and stop shaming people for the responses that they have when they're assaulted, when they're harassed. Um, People also shame people for having the wrong response later after an assault um, because there are myths around how a person should respond. The reality is that, you know, there can be any number of different ways to respond to an assault. Um, and so part of what I do is busting these myths, now offering information. I find that um, people are really impacted by learning about the freeze response if they weren't aware of it already. It helps explain things. I know for me, when I learned about it, I was like, oh, okay, now I understand because I blamed myself. I thought, oh, I must be a wimp. I know I said I was, the next time something like that happened, I was gonna punch them, but then I didn't do anything. So I must be a wimp, I must be, you know, 
weaker than I thought I was. Even though I knew that like, I felt really weird. And like, so the last time I had a freeze response, I was actually um, part-time Uber driver in Honolulu. And I picked somebody up and it was early in the morning and they were in their work clothes. We were driving along. And at some point I realized that they had their pants open and their cock out. And I froze. I froze. I mean, I kept driving, but I was like, I couldn't say anything. I, and I was almost at their stop when that happened. So I kept driving. I stopped the car. They got out. And then I just drove home. And then I laid down for like two hours. I couldn't even like make a phone call or anything. Um, so I was able to keep driving, but I wasn't really functioning. And I knew it was really weird, but I didn't understand about autonomic responses. And, and still, I think science still doesn't really, they understand how quickly we go into them, but I haven't seen any research about how long it takes to come out and how that works or how, you know, over the long term it affects you or things like that. So there's still a lot of research that needs to be done. Um, but anyway, that's one reason that people just might not be able to say no at all. But even if you don't take the freeze response into account, most of us have a hard time saying no. We don't want to hurt people's feelings. We don't want to let people down. We want to be liked. We want to fit in. Uh, we might be afraid of the reaction that we're going to get if we say no. There's so many reasons why. Um, but even in really low stakes situations, most people have a hard time saying no. Um, and that to me, so that's the awareness because um, to me, the skills that I teach and the tools, they are all built upon this awareness that, you know, people really struggle with saying no, with hearing no, with asking for what they want, uh, with knowing that they can change their minds with noticing what they want and what they don't want. And all these things are essential for having a good interaction with others. So, yeah. Um, so I love teaching the skills and tools, but it's all built on this foundation of awareness of how challenging it is because we've all learned the wrong thing. Um, most of us anyway. Um, <laughs> And we had, so there's a lot of unlearning to do as well as learning. And I, I'm glad that you're talking about the freeze, you know, uh, because we don't talk about that enough. Uh, you know, and as adults, we're like, well, come on, like this happened like 30 years ago. Why is this still triggering me? Mm -hmm. Well, it's because it's been ingrained in you to be frozen, right? Because when the abuser comes at you, you automatically freeze. You're just like, if I just go steal and I go quiet, they're going to go away. It's going to stop. Mm -hmm. They're going to be fast. It's going to get over with quick, quicker if we're quiet. And it's like you said, Erica, it's most people have it in society that it's loud. It's screaming. Mm -hmm. It's banging. It's, you know, you're fighting for your life. But 85% of child abuse survivors have all gone quiet. That's right. Have all gone to the silent side. They've all I, I, I'm I'm seen, but I'm not heard. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go play with my doll in the corner. I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to be a good girl. I'm going to be a good boy. I'm going to be, you know, mm -hmm. because it's not only girls that are being molested. It's boys as well, you know, and we need to get that out there that it's okay to say no as yes. a child to somebody who's older than us, an older sibling, uh, a relative, a friend of the family. You know, we can say no without mm -hmm. being punished for it, you know, because if we're being punished for saying no, for being abused, yeah. then our parents or our guardians are just as much as at fault for covering it up. Um, and what I like to say to young people is you have a right to say no. You can practice saying no, but I try not to say, you know, you can say no. Because maybe they can't. And then I'm just making them feel worse about that. They can't say no, right? Maybe they were never taught how to say no. Exactly, right. And that's how, as parents or as educators, we can, you know, model respecting their autonomy, um, checking in, helping them to figure out 
if they're a yes or a no, giving them time and space, um, honoring their no when they say it, um, asking other people in our lives, like if it's our kids and we're wanting to teach them these consent skills, uh, we can tell the people around us, look, we're trying to teach our kid how to, that they have a right to their own physical autonomy. So please, can you be part of that and ask them for a hug? And if they say, no, don't get upset. Just be like, oh, that's, that's fine. You know, um, and we can model that as well. It could be difficult for us at the end of a hard day to come home and have our seven-year-old say, no, I don't want a hug. But when we say, oh, hey, thanks for letting me know what your, you know, what you want or what you don't want. Um, I'm, you know, good for you for knowing what your boundary is and expressing it. When we do that, we're teaching them how, what the response should be when they say no. And we're teaching them to feel good about, you know, having uh, expressed their authentic boundaries. And when I teach parents that, I say, like, I'm not saying if your kid says no to washing the dishes that you have to be like, oh, thanks for letting me know. No, this is, this is about... <laughs> no, the dishes don't need to get washed. <laughs> no, this is about their physical autonomy, their physical agency. And, you know, and also things like, say, if they ha are like, okay, I'm a big boy now and I want my bedroom door closed. Hey, that's great that you know that's what you need now. And like, thanks for telling me. Um, I'm really glad you figured that out and you were able to tell me. Now you're like telling them that it's good for them to have boundaries. It's good for them to express them, that you appreciate it and that they can always do that with you. And if some later when they're expressing a boundary, if somebody doesn't respect it, they're going to notice the difference, right? Um, you know, I had a mom say to me, oh, yeah, I wish I had thought of that when um, my daughter said, oh, I don't want you smacking me on the bum anymore. I'm too old for that. And I was just like, oh, so you're all grown up now, <laughs> right? Because, you know, we're used to them being our little kids. So she was like, oh, I wish I'd known, because then I would have been like, oh, thanks for letting me know. Um, so these are the ways that we can model these uh, these skills and, and, and um, teach them at the same time. So I want to talk a little bit about the workbooks that you have and the book that you have. I, I believe that's the book behind you. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have like exercises in, in the book? Uh, yeah, there's um, at least one exercise for every skill. And so the skills are things like, I, I'm, for me, a foundational skill is hearing no graciously. I feel like we could all get better at hearing no. But also when we're teaching people to be, get better at hearing no, we're not putting all the pressure on the, the victim or the targeted person to like say no and have strong boundaries. No, we all need to be more aware of uh, other people's boundaries. So hearing no graciously is a big one. And we have a few exercises to work on that. And the exercises kind of build on themselves. So if a person was doing the whole workshop, they would practice it over and over in different exercises. Because um, it starts with saying and hearing no. And um, there are exercises for helping people to read body language and recognize a lack of enthusiasm. Because that's another thing. That's another reason that consent is not simple is because not even every yes is a yes. We, you know, we say only an enthusiastic yes is a yes. And that's right because, um, and really people can say yes and be totally unenthusiastic and they're doing it because they think that's what they need to do. They think that's what they should do. They think someone won't like them if they don't. And so we all need to get better at recognizing that. And that's one thing where I'm really like, ah, because I feel like in most consent uh, education platforms, they just say, look for an enthusiastic yes, or you must get an enthusiastic yes. But then they don't teach like, what does that look like? Or what does an unenthusiastic yes look like? Because I'll go into classrooms and I'll say, okay, is this consent? And I'll look at the floor and I'll be like, okay, sure. I guess like I couldn't be more unenthusiastic and there will still be several kids in the room that say, yeah, that was consent. Cause you said yes. Wow. So they, 
you know, it doesn't just come naturally to everyone. We have to teach them. We need to roll. We need to, and the, you know, we actually have a really fun exercise where they practice kind of saying the opposite of what they mean, but nobody does anything. So it's kind of like people uh, ask, they take turns being the no person or the yes person and they have to say no or they have to say yes. And when they're saying no, the other people are asking them things that make it hard to say no. You know, just no questions to do with sex or violence. Um, so they'll ask them things like, you know, um, uh, can I give you a thousand dollars? But they have to say no, right? And then they go around, they all take a turn doing that for a while. And then they go around and they are the yes person. And people ask them questions that make it hard to say yes. Um, so like, you know, can you give me a thousand dollars or you can you come clean my house or whatever? And they have to say yes. No one's going to do anything, but they have to say yes. And then you see all these like, yes, oh, yes, right? And so then they get a chance to practice seeing what it looks like when someone's saying the opposite of what they mean and also feeling what it feels like when you're saying the opposite of what you want to say. Because um, that will come up too. It's like, oh, that was actually kind of a familiar feeling because <laughs> that's something I do. Um, so yeah, there's exercises for every skill and they're fun. People laugh. And that's part of, um, you know, I like calling it creating consent culture because, you know, fighting the culture that we're in, fighting the rape culture, fighting culture of coercion, that is exhausting and hard work. And I applaud the people who are doing that and what that takes. I don't, as a survivor, I don't have the energy to to be in that part of it. But I find that the creating of the consent culture is really light and fun. Um, sometimes we talk about a little bit heavy stuff like the freeze response. There's no exercise around that. It's just like, here's some information. If they're younger, I'll talk about how, um, you know, this is a mammalian response and even you know, you'd hear about a deer frozen in the headlights or uh, it's like something that any can happen to any animal. Um, and I'll talk about the science of it. And I'll talk about how it often, it's the most common response for children too, uh, like you were saying. Because, you know, what's happening is your brain is deciding, you know, instantly, what's the most, what's going to, help me survive the most. When you're a kid, where can you go? This is where you live, right? Or usually it's in your home, right? And you you can't fight, you're small, they're big. So of course, freeze is what we go to and our bodies decide. And that's something I really try to help people understand because I have had parents and teachers say to me, well, why aren't you just teaching them not to have a freeze response? And it doesn't work like that. You, it's not a conscious thought process. We don't consciously think, oh, I'll have a freeze response because that's going to work the best. It's an autonomic response. Our brainstem chooses it. And um, there's no time to have a conscious response if you wanted to because it happens in less than 15 milliseconds. I don't know. Like that's faster than I can snap my fingers. Like you can't have a conscious thought that fast. So, um, well, and you can't really teach a freeze response, Erica, because everybody freezes to different things, right? Different surroundings, different smells, different triggers, mm -hmm. you know, uh, what might trigger you won't trigger me. So I'm not going to freeze the same way. So even if you had an exercise, you, you can't really say that that child is going to do that freeze for that moment. They might be more comfortable in that situation than the other child next to them will be, you know? Yeah, you really can't do anything about those autonomic responses. You could, you know, what happens is people end up in their day-to-day -day lives having kind of like a, an approach to things that resembles one of these responses. So perhaps your approach to staying safe is that you're antagonistic to everyone. That would be fight. Or your approach to staying safe is that you're avoiding people. That would be flee. Your approach is freeze. You just kind of like, you know, stay quiet in the background. 
or your approach is fawn where you're just trying to please everyone and make everyone around you happy. And it becomes almost like a personality thing. Um, but it's really like a survival strategy that's similar, but it's not the autonomic response that you have in a life or death or what your body perceives as a life or death situation, because that's another thing people like, oh, someone just grabbed you. It's not life or like, what, how can you say that was life or death? It's not, it's what your body perceives. It's not a conscious decision again. So, yeah. Yeah. So Erica, we have a couple questions here that I want to get out to you. Okay. Uh, first off, how long is the workshop and what age? Yeah. So um, I find like that I can modify it to work for basically age 10 and up under the age of 10, I think kids that age need more like songs and games and things. Um, so that's not my area. Um, and then I have done this workshop with adults and they love it. So it can be any age above the age of 10. And uh, if you do the whole workshop, because it got longer as we wrote the book, we were like, oh, we have to add this, we have to add that. If you do the whole thing, it's like about three hours. So I rarely do the whole thing because um, uh, I'm usually brought into schools for an hour or an hour and a half. So I will do like the main parts that uh, I feel are the most important. So where do you do most of your work and what age group? So um, I go into uh, either intermediate or high schools. I teach teachers. So I do train the trainers for teachers. Um, and I have a course, uh, I have one coming up now in the fall where for a couple of hours each week for eight weeks, I teach other educators, I'll, often they're sex educators or they're violence prevention coordinators or their human resources people, or their teachers, um, or their facilitators of another workshop, and they want to add another workshop to their uh, tool belt. And um, that's something I do usually every fall and every spring. I'm not sure I'm going to do it this spring, but I am doing one coming up uh, in October. And um, so that's great. I get people from all over when I do that. Um, uh, and um, I'm working on uh, just automatic courses, you know, the kind of courses that people can just download, um, just mini courses for parents and teachers. And uh, I'm working on that, but I haven't got those up and running yet. And we have another question here for you. Do you go into the services for any of the abuse victims and survivors, like yeah. any survivor groups? support groups i i don't do that that's the that's the kind of work i was talking about that i applaud other people for doing but i feel like i just don't have the strength for that um yeah yeah so yeah i don't do that well i think it could also be triggering right it's triggering for me i also find it triggering even going into schools because i didn't have the best experience in school um but you know i can manage it um uh, but having said that, I do teach people in those services. I have taught social workers. I've taught people in rape crisis centers. And um, what they come to me to learn is this um, trauma-informed, compassionate approach to consent. Um, and that's the part where I feel like what I offer is really different from the other things out there. Um, be really focusing on the uh, the reasons that consent is complex. So you know, socialization, uh, power differentials, systemic inequity, um, the trauma trauma history. A lot of people will have difficulty with interactions because of their history of trauma. Um, poor modeling. We look at all those factors and how they are a part of every interaction and a part of uh, what we have to look at to work on our consent skills. And um, I guess I haven't seen that a lot yet in other um, consent education uh, programs. 
I hope that that's changing. I hope that's coming, but um, that I feel like I'm a bit of a lone voice out there still about this. Hey, saying no is hard. <laughs> Can we have some compassion for ourselves and others? Because we're all having a hard time saying no. And if we understand that, that just shifts things right away in itself. Just having the understanding that, oh yeah, I do have a hard time saying no, and so do they. And like, okay, now I get why I have to ask more questions. Now I get why I have to double check and see if they're really enthusiastic. Um, the skill of hearing no graciously um, becomes that much more uh, important to people once they realize that, right? And um, and also what like what I actually teach people to do is not just hear no graciously, but to thank people when they say no, which at first they're like, that's weird, that's awkward. Why would you thank someone for saying no to you? And it does feel awkward and weird the first few times, but if you find a way to do it that feels natural for you, like, hey, thanks for letting me know what you want. I, I wanna know what your preferences are, or hey, that's cool, uh, no pressure, or whatever it is that makes you feel comfortable saying thank you, it shifts everything because once a person feels like, oh, I can say no and they actually appreciate it, I'm safe to have boundaries, I can say what my boundaries are, now you're creating safety, now you really are creating intimacy because everyone feels safe to be themselves and say what they need and want um, and what they don't want. And another thing that I really focus on that I don't see in other uh, programs is that it's really common and normal to be unsure and that's okay. Like let's have compassion for ourselves that we don't always know what we want. In fact, um, what Marsha, Marsha's big thing now is teaching asking for what you want. And you can find her at askingforwhatyouwant.com. She does amazing work. Uh, most people have a hard time asking for what they want. They don't ask clearly. They ask for what they think they should ask for. They ask for what they think they can get instead of what they actually want. Um, uh, and that's so important because if only one person is comfortable to ask for what they want and the other person is only saying yes or no, is that really consent? Everyone's wants and needs to need to be able to put be put on the table and then a discussion so that you can have what is actually an interaction that both people want. Um, I feel like I kind of lost my train of thought. Um, so that's another skill that we teach asking for what you want. And there's a fun exercise to go with that as well, um, because most people have a hard time with that as well. And okay, that's what I was gonna say. We talk about knowing what you want. And that's something people get told, know what you want and say what you want. And know that know when you're no and say that you're no. And Marsha actually talks about noticing what you want instead of knowing, because we don't usually know what we want. We And are also it's very normal for our wants to change and they should change as we are in different circumstances or with different people or whatever. Um, our wants and boundaries should change and people, we need to have compassion that that can be confusing and that we need to constantly check in with ourselves to notice what's happening, what's changing. And that's another thing. We have a whole chapter about you can always change your mind because a lot of people still don't. We've been so trained, like you said yes, so now you got to do it, right? And when it comes to your bodily autonomy, no, you can always change your mind no matter what no matter when, even if you signed a marriage contract, you can change your mind. Even if you kissed them yesterday, doesn't mean you have to want to kiss them today. Um, you know, it's always okay to change your mind around your physical autonomy. And I feel like that's something that young people really need to hear because there's still all these ideas around like, oh, well, if you went this far, then you have to go the rest of the way. Or uh, they're not going to want to be in a relationship with me if I don't do these things or um, I guess I'm obligated or whatever, you know. Uh, so 
um, you know, being able to, to notice whether you're a yes or a no, being able to notice what you want. These are really important skills that we can all get better at. Um, and I've, I'll be practicing for the rest of my life because it's, it's a skill that really takes practice, you know? Um, and that's another thing that we teach is that like, don't get discouraged if you don't get it right the first time or the 20th time, because it's about practicing and practicing. There are so many things to unlearn and learn that we're, we're never, we're not going to get it right tomorrow, you know? So we have another question for you, Erica, being a survivor, do you find that it helps to get this message out there? Absolutely. Um, so I've done all kinds of research and one of the best ways to turn PTSD into P post-traumatic growth. So a lot of people haven't heard of post-traumatic growth, but it's actually a very common response to trauma. Um, we talk about PTSD a lot, um, but, but to be honest, a lot of people have trauma and then they grow from it and they move on. And that's very possible. And when you've, when you're in a place of having PTSD, you can move that. I mean, it's not like I never have any PTSD symptoms anymore, but one of the best things that helps you to move from PTSD to post-traumatic growth is um, finding a way to get meaning out of the trauma to make, you know, you see people who've lost a child start a foundation or something. It helps to have something where you're like, okay, this terrible thing happened, but because of that, I learned empathy, I learned this, I learned that, and now I can use that and do something good with it. And that keeps you moving, right? It, it's a, um, it shifts things. Um, another really important thing to do is to share um, your to use your voice and share your story in safe spaces where you feel supported. That's really important. A lot of um, the reason that a lot of sexual abuse survivors have PTSD is because we feel silenced and we felt like we couldn't tell anybody or we felt ashamed. Um, and that, and then it eats away inside of us when really there's so many of us, if we're not the majority, you know, um, and, but it, you know, you have to make sure you're sharing in a space that's safe for you, though, that feels safe, where you feel supported. Um, otherwise, it can be re-traumatizing if you have people, you know, shut you down again or whatever. So find if you can find a supportive, even one other person that's supportive and safe for you to talk about um, what you went through and how you're feeling, that can help. Then being if when you get to the point where you can take that experience and use it to do something good with it that can help and there's another one there's a third one and now i, I can't remember it right now there's a third thing that helps you shift from ptsd to post-traumatic growth but you have to look it up again. so erica where did you find out about this post-traumatic growth um i think i was just researching and i and i stumbled across it yeah i was really happy to learn about it as well I, yeah, because it's the first time I've heard of it. Uh, so I, I'm going to be doing some research on it as well, because, you know, we can always take the negative and turn it into a positive. And like you said at the beginning of the show, we need more compassion for getting these topics out there. And I think the survivors are the ones to do it. I, I say this all the time. We live it. We know the symptoms. We know the triggers. We know the, fr the, the freeze patterns. Mm -hmm. we can speak on it because we lived it. Mm -hmm. And I think this is where we're going to make a huge impact and a huge difference. When we start using our voices to create programs like yours, uh, creating consent culture, you know, because you're bringing a healthy uh, way of bringing it to the table to have a good conversation, you know, open dialogue and safe. Like when we're, when we feel safe, then we can open up, yeah. you know, and when both partners, uh, male or female or, you know, family members feel safe and they can actually talk and know each other's boundaries. You have better communication skills and you have better community out outcomes. 
you know, and it breaks the patterns, it breaks the cycles when people start to understand that consent is not just the body, like you said at the beginning of the show, you know, it's everyday life. Like if I say yes to you, that I'm going to go and take you to the doctors and then I wake up and I'm just like, I'm having a PTS day. I can't get out. I can't move. Mm-hmm. Don't hold it against me because I gave you a yes yeah. yesterday and today I'm saying no. You know, mm-hmm. you can change your mind. And that's just an example, you know, of how we can change our minds. Yeah. And you have some really good articles that we're running almost to the hour here. You have some really good articles that are on your blog that I recommend people to go and check out. Check out the website. Check out what Erica is doing because I think that we need more of this. We need more survivors stepping up and creating platforms like this where we can have the conversations that we were too scared to talk about when we were children. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and so that we can get through the post-traumatic growth. I've never heard of it before and I'm learning something new tonight and for all the listeners out there, they this might be the first time they're hearing it too so you know what i mean we we can see that there's an improvement mm-hmm. we don't always have to stay with the victim mode the victim you know let's become survivors let's become warriors let's become mm-hmm. the voice of change and that's what i see with your program and your book is that you're bringing change because you didn't have it as a child so you were like what can i bring to the table that i didn't have yeah that's right and please have compassion for yourselves and be kind to yourselves and that's where it all starts and then you know it's actually the hardest thing to have compassion for ourselves and be kind to ourselves and the the only way i learned how to do it was to actually pretend like i was somebody else (laughs) to be like okay how would i treat you know someone i wanted to spoil you know okay i would do that okay i'll do that for me do that for yourself give yourself that be kind to yourself. Let the cells in your body know that they're loved and everything good comes from there, I think. I want to go into something because when I asked you your favorite color, Erica, you gave me lavender. Oh, did I? <laughs> so is lavender one of your th- and treats, like one of your things that you celebrate with? Like I think for yourself with? I probably picked that because, because I've had the experience of picking lavender in lavender fields before. And it's so such a lovely experience. Um, lavender is very calming and soothing. And when you're picking it in a whole field of lavender, you just end up being like, oh, everything's great. <laughs> well, and we need those moments, right? Yeah. So what, what did you use to pamper yourself, Erica, to make yourself feel good? Uh, things that help me. Well, I love um, dancing. That helps me feel good. I love getting a massage. If I can get a uh, therapeutic massage that helps me feel good. Um, uh, go get myself acupuncture, take myself out for a nice dinner, you know, even if there's no one else to, to go with, you know, just get myself my favorite thing. Um, just little things that are like, it's okay. It's okay for like, you can have this, you know, um, but everyone has different things, right? Everyone has different things that make them feel spoiled, that make them feel like cared about um, and just figuring out what that is. Maybe it's singing, maybe it's going for a walk even, you know, and uh, I don't know how many other people out there are like this, but I was this compulsive uh, list maker and everything on my list was about making sure that everyone else in my life was taken care of. And I wasn't even on the list, right? And then it, and then I never let it run out. If it got shorter, I added things to it. So if you're that kind of person, please stop doing that. Put yourself at the top of the list. Make sure you take some time, you know, for yourself and to take care of yourself. You know, I know it can be really hard sometimes, even if it's just a few minutes of like, you know, this is time for me to shower myself with some kind of love absolutely well i want to really thank you erica for sitting and sharing your story with us tonight uh for any of the viewers out there and if this tea time resonated with you and it helps you and if you're looking for the book go to her website Uh, erica i'll get you to say your website and spell it out for the audio listeners out there and then we're going to wrap up and we're going to start all over again next week 
Yeah, I mean, it's creatingconsentculture.com. So hopefully that's easy to find. And um, yeah, and feel free to reach out to me. Uh, I'm happy to answer questions. Uh, there's a contact button on there. Um, and the email is just info at creatingconsentcultures.com or consentculture.com, sorry. And um, yeah, and I'm on Instagram as well. And I have a Facebook page. Um, yeah, so if you go to the website and you go right down to the bottom, you'll see all the little icons and you just click on them and they're going to take you to where she is. Awesome. Thanks. I really want to thank you, Erica, for doing this and being a voice for some of the survivors out there. Uh, you know, we all get louder when we all work together and we all share together. So I want to thank you for sharing tonight. I want to thank all the viewers and listeners that tuned in tonight. Uh, if you'd like to know more about Miss Liz's Tea Times, check out my website at www.misslizesteatimes.com. You'll see this Tea Time there as well, but you'll also see it on, on multiple platforms for podcasting stations and apps. Also on the radio, you can check it out. You can check out the YouTube channel. Give it a quick subscribe. You can watch these Tea Times at your own pace. You can watch 10 minutes, pause it, go back, watch another 10 minutes. Because I know sometimes an hour Tea Time is a lot for some people. So you can pace yourself. The tea times are there for life. Check them out. Watch with what resonates with you. And if something resonates, share the tea time because this is how we make a difference. And this is how we spill tea with Miss Liz is we just get the awareness out there. So we're teaching education awareness through our stories and we make a difference. So until then, I will see everybody next Thursday, same time, same place. And three different TEAs will be coming to the table. So have a good weekend and stay blessed. Thank you.